This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Alicia Rainey blinked her eyes into the bright California sunshine as she exited a store on Santa Monica Boulevard in Los Angeles. She was making her way back to her parking spot when suddenly, squad cars swooped in on her position. Officers jumped out of the vehicles with their hands on their pistols. Alarmed, Rainey spun around to see what all the commotion was. Had there been a robbery? She didn't see anything out of the ordinary, and that's when she realized the officers were coming straight towards her. I was arrested on a, on a warrant for a, a, a fleeing, a fugitive. The officers told Rainey she was a fugitive as they clicked cuffs around her wrists. The next thing Rainey knew, she was sitting behind bars at a downtown LA jail. Her mind raced. What did the police mean that she was a fugitive? A fugitive from what? She thought backwards and then, a sinking feeling. This wasn't related to her time in Colorado, was it? If you'll recall, Alicia Rainey was the 69-year-old Tree recruited at her son's wedding in 2012. Over drinks, Tree had made Rainey a business pitch. Yeah, it's legal, he says. He's got a big smile on his face. As the oldest member of the syndicate, Rainey stuck around Colorado for two years, working as a caregiver. But Rainey burned out on the pot business after turning 71. She never saw the $10,000 a month Tree promised her, and weed hadn't been a magic bullet in helping her son Jordan deal with his multiple sclerosis like she'd hoped. So in 2014, Rainey moved to Los Angeles to be with family. And it wasn't like I escaped California. I filed a change of address form. Rainey had heard about the October SWAT raids in Colorado. She sure was glad she decided to leave the business. But five months later, when a grand jury indicted 32 people with crimes connected to the syndicate? Nobody notified me that I should be in court. Nor did she know that the grand jury charged her with 27 counts of alleged criminal acts, including racketeering, money laundering, and illegal drug distribution. But that was just the beginning of her surprises. Law enforcement extradited Rainey to Colorado. And when she arrived at the downtown detention center in Denver, of the elevator and into this uh, this space where you before you get into the cell and there's the bars and behind the bars is Sheila and Liz Tree's sisters I almost dropped dead I couldn't believe it I was so surprised we hugged we laughed you sit with us Sheila said she was filling filling me in on all this stuff including the SWAT raids. Sheila said that they, they came into her house like stormtroopers, through the windows on ropes with guns. By the time Sheila recounted her experiences, Rainey had met with a public defender and read the grand jury's indictment. But the state issued it weeks before. Rainey couldn't believe that Tree's sisters still sat behind bars. After all, the grand jury charged their brother with more criminal counts than anyone. And the word was, Tree never even got arrested. Isn't that something? Because he's, he's a slippery pup, that's why. He is. He, he manages to save his ass every time. 
Rainey's story was already playing out differently. Without the proper means and connections, her future looked rocky. Because money and power don't just define the business world, but also the justice system. Would anyone lend her a hand? It didn't seem likely if Tree's own sisters were in jail. I asked Rainey about that. I mean, did, when you saw Liz and Sheila in jail, did they have anything to say about that? Like, I can't believe we're being hung out to dry? No. They don't talk bad about him. Maybe he's the spoiled brat. Maybe the whole family took care of him. Who knows? There's different family dynamics. Loyalty is certainly part of the Wynn family dynamic. Trina's siblings refused to rat on each other. They closed ranks. Most everyone else sang like canaries. So after the syndicate's fall, who ultimately came out ahead? And what did it mean for all those decades-long friendships? What about justice? Did the punishments fit the crime? And finally, what did the syndicate's reign on the black market mean for the state of Colorado and the cannabis industry writ large? In this last episode of the season, Consequences. I'm Chris Walker, your host in this series about high-flying pot smugglers, the rise and fall of a criminal enterprise, and the evolution of marijuana's black market in the era of legal weed. From Foxipus Inc. and Imperative Entertainment, this is The Syndicate. Is there any, let me put it this way before I tree new say, way. let's skip over, is there anything that you can think of at this moment related to the narrow subjects we've talked about that you think uh, you should add? Understanding that it's almost certain we're going to meet in the future to talk some more. Oh man, this is crazy. Tom, crazy Tom, he's, he's on the indictment. He's is the one that taught Kyler, all these guys are so cocky and arrogant, how to grow. And Tree always took credit for that. You've been listening to snippets of these interrogation recordings all season. There's a reason they're so incriminating, and there's so many of them. As I mentioned towards the end of last episode, Tree never planned a way to coordinate everyone's cover stories in case cops ever busted his organization. He paid dearly for that mistake as police called in 5, 10, 15, then 20 members of the syndicate, many floundered. Their attempts to distance themselves fell apart not only in the face of mounting evidence, but because law enforcement put the squeeze on them. They let me know the magic number 46 every time I saw them, that I was facing 46 years in prison if I didn't cooperate. That's Doug Dunlap, the science guy Tree hired to do cannabis extractions in a lab. What they did is they sat you down in front of everybody else's proffers on video. Proffer is another word for voluntary interrogation. So my attorney would put them in my face and make me see what everybody else was saying. So what did Doug know? What did you see him do over here? Did he ever say, like, I'm doing this for the good of mankind? Or, I mean, what was his story? Oh, he was doing Two reasons. I mean, Doug is just a mad scientist and enjoyed doing it. He was kind of quirky like that. Um, he was doing it for money. And they tried to play us off like that. As Dunlap explains it, 
The interrogations turned into a race to see who could be the best rat. The cops showed suspects who was confessing. And Dunlap says that seeing other people dish dirt on him meant that he had to do the same. He couldn't let other defendants control the narrative. Some, like Pat Kincannon, considered it a cruel game. As a longtime friend of some of his co-defendants, he agonized over whether to cough up more evidence against them. These are some of the closest people I've ever been around. You know, it's awful, and I fought it for everything I could. I, being kind of in the upper echelon of everything, was extremely hesitant to even say anything or do anything. I couldn't bring myself to do it. I waited till the very last day. And finally, the prosecutor said, you're almost out of time. Almost out of time before the prosecutor withdrew a plea deal. He's like, I've had three other people come in, and they've given me the whole story. What else could Pat do but confess? And the more the cops learned, the more they controlled the interviews. What yeah. would Joe do with marijuana? Joe would probably take the marijuana wherever he had a buyer. I'm not sure where. Was it in the state or out of the state? Uh, well, probably out of the state. Okay, we're gonna, you just need to stop because okay. you know you're lying, right? You know you're not being forthright. You know you're not being honest. Point okay. of contact. So, so the it's point so of it is, is stop, oh, okay. stop distancing yourself. I don't know. Okay. I didn't. I just wanted to be medical marijuana man. Stop it. Agents, especially Randy Ladd with the DEA, didn't tolerate any equivocating from the likes of Kyler Gerbich. This is not something that we just coming in here on a fishing expedition. No, I know that. Okay, so you can go out and speak to your attorney and you decide whether you're gonna come in and be honest. Because if you're not gonna be honest, we already know. Law enforcement knew exactly what they were doing. Rather than prepare for trial, they tried to convince all the defendants to take plea deals. Everyone had the option of receiving reduced sentences if they volunteered information. And in one instance, a defendant came in hoping to get her charges dropped altogether. So after this happens in your house, did you ask training questions? Of course. I said, what's going on? What happened? Why did they do this? And he said, I don't know. I mean, they think we did something illegal. Tree's partner, Christine Root who agents questioned about her conversations with Tree after a SWAT team raided their Cherry Creek apartment. It just seems like there was a lot of um, cash, uh, I guess total over $800,000 in your possession. I don't, it doesn't make, seem to add up a whole lot. Yeah, and I don't feel like we had $800,000. I don't that was not the world that I lived in, but nothing that you guys depict about the world that I lived in is the world that I actually believed that I lived in, that I was aware of, that I knew anything about. And I still, honestly, I have a really hard time because I know that the things you guys have said about me are not true. I was not some financial mastermind running some mafia drug scheme. And so I have a hard time just wrestling. I trust he and I, I love him and I've been with him for so long that I still, Emotionally, I have a really hard time wrapping my mind around what you guys are saying to be true because that's not the world that I knew at all. That's not the world that I lived. Do you know he uses cocaine? He does not use cocaine. Okay, do you know a guy named Fat Rich? No. Rich Riley? No. Do you know about his gang connections? I've never heard of him. I don't know. Do you know that he's threatened people before and their families? 
No. Do you know the tree has business with him? No. Did you know the tree ships marijuana to him? No. Did you know the tree ships marijuana to Minnesota? No. Do you know the tree sells marijuana? No. He was, what I knew was he's a landlord that he rents space out that had nothing to do with the marijuana itself. That was the responsibility of the caregivers. That was their business. Detectives and prosecutors suspected that Christine carried out the bulk of the syndicate's money laundering. Why had she made so many bank deposits? What about all those money order transactions? Christine responded that she was just doing errands for Tree, little favors at his bequest. Those lines wouldn't have worked for any ordinary member of the syndicate, but Christine went to extra lengths with her defense. She passed a polygraph test, and by submitting to extensive questioning without tipping off a lie detector, she challenged the state's ability to take her to court. Prosecutors ended up dropping over 30 criminal charges against her. Out of the 32 people indicted, she's the only one who didn't plead guilty. Everyone else took a deal. No one went to trial. But what their deals looked like varied widely. Most lower and mid-level members of the syndicate agreed to felony convictions in return for one to four years of probation. But a few received jail time. Tree's brother, Kui Wen, had a previous felony and received two years in prison. The state also hit Kyler Gerbich with a stiffer penalty. As Aaron Ellering, Tree's enforcer, told me, Lied to the, to the cops about father died or had a heart attack and he left out of state and he wasn't supposed to or something and then they like called his dad his dad's like nope Kyler ended up with a four-year prison sentence and Tree the guy at the top a judge sentenced him to 11 years in prison so the cops won prosecutors and agents patted themselves on the back for taking down a huge organization securing guilty pleas from 31 individuals and making sure the kingpin faced the stiffest penalties of all. In the following months, they had even more reason to puff out their chests. Legislative victories. After news of Operation Golden Gopher broke, lawmakers in Denver revised the city's medical marijuana caregiving rules. Monday night, Denver City Council tightened things up, limiting caregivers to 36 plants instead of leaving the number vague. The city council made that change specifically because of the syndicate. Then, in late 2015, the Colorado legislature put limits on the total number of plants each caregiver could grow, closing the loopholes in the state's law. Just like that, the government was back on top. Case closed. From here on out, something like the syndicate could never happen again. Right? It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about 
how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Big busts took place in neighborhoods across the Front Range. Officials say they found large-scale black market marijuana grow operations in more than 40 homes. Dozens of people are under arrest right now. In May 2019, coordinated police raids in Colorado once again made headlines around the country. Except this time... In total, the investigation has resulted in the seizure of over 80,000 marijuana plants and over two tons of a finished marijuana product. Now, we cannot put the genie back into the bong. Can't do it. This operation has not destroyed the black market. It has only dented it. The marijuana bus surpassed the syndicates as the largest in Colorado history. So, whoops. Looks like that victory lap after Operation Golden Gopher may have been a bit premature. Turns out, Colorado's black market woes did not end with the syndicate. The organization at the center of this more recent takedown was not nearly as sophisticated. It did not hide in plain sight using warehouses or engage in elaborate money laundering tactics. But it underscored a new threat. Whereas the syndicate had been homegrown, these operatives were foreign nationals, in this case from China, who came to Colorado to set up their trafficking ring. They weren't the first foreigners to do so either. In recent years, another international crime group rented luxury homes in Colorado to set up their illegal marijuana grows. Well, you could call this Wisteria Lane meets Scarface. Colorado authorities say Cuban nationals with ties to organized crime are moving into posh homes in the quiet suburbs of Colorado and growing massive amounts of weed illegally. Nationwide, demand for foreign-grown weed is dropping. Pot seizures at our country's borders have fallen by more than 50% since 2012. But seeing as how foreign nationals are now coming into the U.S. to set up shop, there's clearly still profit to be made in the black market. That's forced prosecutors to admit certain facts about takedowns like Operation Golden Gopher. Prosecutors like the Assistant Attorney General of Colorado, Rob Shapiro. These large, successful prosecutions have yet to deter other people. Why? I think the argument is money. Shapiro includes the syndicate in that category. As long as there is a profit motive, there are going to be people enticed or encouraged to come to Colorado, whether that be the tree and the winds relocating from Minnesota to Colorado. Consequences weren't enough to deter him from taking the risk for the almighty daughter. So if large prosecutions and public shaming don't deter organized crime, how are we to look back on the syndicate? And in the long run, who really paid the price? At a minimum, everyone charged in connection with the syndicate went through some period of probation after sentencing, meeting with case officers, facing travel restrictions. But most plea deals came with at least one felony conviction, which continued to impact people's futures and livelihoods. Today, Pat Kincannon has a wife and two kids in Ohio. With his criminal record, he struggles to find any stable work, bouncing between small construction jobs. Some days, he loses hope. Others, he thinks things might turn around. 
but rarely a day goes by when he doesn't look back on his time with the syndicate. I think about it every day, you know? Yeah. And I think about the missteps, and I think about, you know, as I described to you before, it's so, it's so crazy to the, to some days you're angry at people, angry at yourself, to some days you're like kind of happy you got to know those people because, you know, I know what, what we all, how we all cared for each other. He even includes Tree in that category, though he doesn't talk to him anymore. Pat finds it hard to reconcile how Tree's actions affected some people he brought into the business like Alicia Rainey, who is now 76 years old, broke, and also can't find any real work with her criminal record. Pat likewise feels for his friend Tom Dispinette. That I'm stuck with the restitution order. A hefty fine. The first time slapped me for 152 years and two point some million, and I am like, now they're, they're trying to work it down to something else. They did. It's now down to around $800,000, an amount he has to pay installments on every month. Some months, Tom says he has to sell antiques and family heirlooms on Craigslist, like those old whiskey bottles that his grandfather bootlegged to make the payments. When you're shackled by some, uh, you know, never-ending payments, you start to lose hope. And I, I get that I was, you know, bad, I, hey, you know, I, yeah, and I know my guilt, boy, do I feel it. And I really um, sunk myself into something and boy, is there, you know, much bigger fish here and there. To be fair, Tom is a big fish, at least when it comes to the syndicate. But there was one bigger fish. While everyone under tree took punishment, the state fully intended to come down on him the hardest. Remember, in 2017, a judge sentenced him to 11 years in prison. But one afternoon that same year, Adam Tilley was in Cherry Creek and did a double take when he spotted Tree walking by. I was blown away to see him walking the streets as early as it was, you know, thinking being the kingpin of this operation. Tilly went right up to Tree. He had to know. How was he out of prison already? Tree came right out and told Tilly that he had spent almost double what they had initially caught him with to keep himself from going to jail for an extended period of time. Tilly had read the grand jury indictment just like anyone else, so he knew that the cops found $750,000 in Tree and Christine's apartment. Taking Tree's word literally, it'd mean he'd paid his lawyer $1.5 million. As I found out through court documents, Tree's lawyer negotiated something called a reconsideration hearing 90 days into his 11-year prison sentence. And at that reconsideration hearing, Tree's attorney argued that his client had exhibited stellar behavior behind bars, was not a threat to society, and had a family depending on him to provide. The judge, sympathetic to reuniting Tree with his children, suspended the whole rest of his sentence. So there you have it. The kingpin walks free. And if you think Tree would have to find a new line of work outside of the cannabis industry, you'd be wrong. In 2019, Tree opened a hemp company. Tree Root Distillery extracts chemical compounds from hemp plants grown on industrial farms. While related to pot, there are different laws governing hemp and marijuana. Hemp doesn't get you high, 
and one of its main compounds, CBD, has shown medical promise and is the fastest growing sector of the larger cannabis industry. CBD, CBD, CBD. Sprouting up everywhere and in everything. CBD infused lattes, beauty products, baked goods, even dog treats. Many CBD purveyors buy bulk extracts from distilleries. So that next pump of CBD oil you add to your coffee for $5, maybe it came from Tree's distillery. I wanted to know more about the new business, but Tree never did talk to me. Nor does he talk to his closest former friends, Cohen, Pat, and Tom. The syndicate ruined their relationships. But after everything, an expensive, multi-agency investigation that spanned from Cowboy's confession to a grand jury indictment lasted far longer than Tree sat behind bars. I'm not breaking any news pointing out how money plays an outsized role in our criminal justice system or that hiring well-connected attorneys tends to produce better outcomes. Five years after taking down the syndicate, I wondered if law enforcement is as pleased with the results of the case as they were initially. Assistant AG Shapiro answered by way of comparison. Uh, we're better situated today than we were in 2015. We have uh, enhanced our approach to these cases, we've taken fresh eyes, and we're focusing more on the leaders of these enterprises and making sure that the leaders of the enterprises are held appropriately accountable, which are the lessons learned from Golden Gopher. He says his office is doing a better job focusing prosecutions on the trees of organized crime groups rather than the Rainies. His answer suggests he's not exactly satisfied with the way things turned out for the syndicate's leader. Still, the prosecutor did tip his hat to Tree, ever so slightly. If he put his mind to something lawful and productive, people like Tree could actually be positive contributors to society. After all, Tree made for a smart adversary. He'd spotted the caregiving loophole glaring at him on Colorado's law books and seized upon the opportunity. He almost went legal and probably would have given more time. And in executing his vision, Tree made a lot of mistakes, sure, but there's no question he was a master marijuana grower, one of the most accomplished in Colorado. So how might his story have played out differently? Well, maybe if we stripped away the incentive he had to take shortcuts. Maybe if we eliminated the black market for marijuana. As Brian Vicente, the lawyer behind Colorado's recreational pot law told me, Nationwide legalization is a crucial step going forward. After all, if marijuana were legal in all 50 states, that would remove the arbitrage incentive. But when you have states that don't have a regulated market yet, there's going to be an incentive for people to bring marijuana to those, uh, to those markets. I mean, we kind of have this weird um, schizophrenia going on in our country. The schizophrenia Vicente mentions fuels the black market and can be seen in the stats. A frequently cited study from 2016 found that between the United States and Canada, the black market accounted for 87% of all pot sales. I mean, I, there's just a strong argument that the federal government needs to catch up with what states are doing, just, if nothing else, just to end the confusion around this. And then there'll be a lot, a lot less, if, if any, um, you know, black market, I think. Let's reiterate a fundamental truth. Weed is here to stay. We already know that most of America wants legal pot. And now that it's happening on the state level, scientists and doctors are learning more about cannabis's chemical properties and medical benefits every day. But it goes beyond that. Because if we don't legalize it, 
the syndicates of the world are going to continue profiting in a black market filled with threats, violence, tax dodging, and an absence of environmental regulations. If we don't legalize it, we're going to continue funding expensive investigations that put people in jail, who tend to disproportionately be people of color and low-level members of groups like the syndicate. We stick criminal records upon those defendants and prevent them from getting jobs, all in pursuit of a mirage cooked up in an outdated war on drugs. If legalizing pot nationwide prevents that, it's time. At the beginning of the series, I asked why we should care about a pot bust. This story shows us that until we focus on solving the larger issues around marijuana, we're going to continue playing whack-a-mole with organizations like the Syndicate. We have so many bigger problems to tackle in our society than weed, including much more menacing drugs. So long as we continue going after the Syndicates in society without addressing the legal system that makes them possible, we're just repeating history on an endless loop. We're failing to see the forest for the trees. Oh wait, there's one last person in our story that you're probably wondering about. In January of 2015, I checked myself into rehab. It was, you know, it was kind of an ultimatum. I had been talking about going into rehab before. Uh, I knew I had a problem, but I was just so busy doing all of this other stuff. I'm just like, I can't just disappear for 30 days. Joe Johnson avoided any jail time by working with law enforcement as a confidential informant. But he says that it took him a while to land on his feet. Besides going to rehab to get clean. I gave the two businesses to my ex-girlfriend, so I stepped away while dealing with all of this stuff. Joe trusted the ex-girlfriend to take care of his jump zones in Minneapolis and Houston while he was in rehab and working with authorities as an informant. She cut him out of the businesses. But Joe says that he doesn't blame her. The only thing I regret is losing the, the kids, you know. His stepsons no longer talk to him. Joe says it's been a frustrating five years. Looking back, he believes that the DEA misused him. The Minneapolis DEA never really got to follow up on any of, any of CT's distribution. Again, CT is Crazy Tom. They never got the college professor. They never got the businessman. They never got, you know, they never got any of these guys. They, you know, they got CT, that was it. But his CT's network in Minneapolis was huge. Joe maintains that the DEA undercut his usefulness when it made him go to Minnesota without the pot and money Kansas authorities confiscated from him. Had they had the DEA handled it differently um, and let that back out, they would have wrapped up the whole fucking network, you know, because nobody would have been, nobody would have been suspicious, you know. Still, Joe has few regrets about working as an informant. People can say they hate me for talking to the police, but everybody did, you know, in the end. Uh, this was going to be the people I was going to throw away. And maybe I regret that a little bit because I did become friends with them, you know, and I, I was welcomed into that family. But again, we were all adults, knowing what we were doing was wrong, and knowing that it's, not, it's never going to last forever. It never, ever lasts forever. Eventually, Joe found his momentum. In 2018, he bought a jump zone in Texas called Skydive Lone Star, the place where I went skydiving with him in 2019. 
It's a significant turn of events when you think about it. Before meeting Joe, I had wondered where he got the money to buy a new business, complete with an airplane. Didn't working with the feds mean he'd have to give over all the spoils from his drug running? Well, yes. But incredibly, Joe told me that while he was working as an informant to bring down the syndicate, he was still smuggling pot for other groups at the same time. I was still playing both sides this whole time. I, I reinvented my organization out of, out of California now. And I was taking trips to California while I was working for the DEA. It's fucking crazy, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that definitely sounds like you're playing fast and loose. <laughs> I don't know about fast and loose, very fast, um, but more calculated this time because they didn't have any names, they didn't have any, they didn't have anything. <laughs> I fucking <laughs> prove it. <laughs> you gotta hand it to him. The guy has balls, and at least up until this episode airs, the plan worked. Joe's snitching on the syndicate diverted the DEA's attention away from the other groups he continued smuggling for. Granted. Those groups weren't thrilled when news of Operation Golden Gopher came out. I got a lot of shit from the people that I protected at first, you know, but I'm like, you know, you're still a free man, <laughs> you know, so I wouldn't complain too much. I'm still not sure why Joe admitted this, considering he definitely violated his agreement with the DEA. But at least in my interview, Joe suggested his pot smuggling days are squarely behind him. I did more insane things in that two year time period than most people will do in their entire life. You know, every time I tell the story to somebody, it's like that you should write a book or that should be a movie. And just like any good book or movie, Joe had one more revelation up his sleeve. I had already heard hints about hidden money in some of the interrogation tapes. You know, I just know that they, you know, what he told me that if anything ever happened, that there would be money there. It's, he said it's hidden. I mean, what he said is he just said it's, they'll never find it. He didn't describe where it was hid, if it was buried or not. He just said that they got a lot of land and uh, a house or two on the land, and one of them is like a really old home. The he in this case is tree, and the money being discussed is different than the bags of cash with GPS trackers on them in the Rockies. Tree told at least one associate he'd hid millions on Christine's parents' ranch in Red Wing, Minnesota. I had asked DEA agent Randy Ladd about that. We had heard about those stores of money, and obviously they're not going to say, oh, you know, here's where it is buried on this ranch. But as far as money buried up on this ranch in Minnesota, we did... Uh, have people go up there and look around. But again, you know, nobody's telling us where it is. I also asked Joe if he knew anything about that stash. Instead, he started talking about another cache of hidden money. I made sure to ask him about it again when I saw him in Texas, about how, somewhere out there on the plains, he had buried a case. <laughs> Maybe a pelican case. <laughs> $700,000 approximately? Yeah, you know, maybe somewhere. I would say closer to 500 to you know. But I don't really know the number because that was a crazy night. <laughs> still below ground, allegedly? Allegedly still below ground. If that was to be true, <laughs> it would still be below ground. <laughs> 
And of course, I had to know, is his the only one out there? I can guarantee you. I'm sure Tree has a pelican case too. <laughs> this is probably a little bit bigger. <laughs> yeah. This has been season one of The Syndicate. If you enjoyed the show, I have some good news. We'll be releasing a couple more bonus episodes with interview outtakes and additional details about this story. We'll get those into your feed soon. In the meantime, if you loved coming along for this journey, show some support by leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps more people find out about our show. You can also visit thesyndicatepodcast.com for more behind-the-scenes details about this series. The Syndicate is a co-production of Imperative Entertainment and Fox to Inc. Executive producer is Jason Hoke. Produced and edited by Laura Krantz and Scott Carney. The Syndicate is scored and mixed by Louis Weeks. I'm your host and creator, Chris Walker. This podcast was made possible, in part, by the Fund for Investigative Journalism. Of course, it takes more than a small team to put together a show like this. And so I want to acknowledge the generosity of a few other people, including Lawrence Pacheco at the Colorado Department of Law for putting up with all my records requests. Patricia Calhoun at Westward for understanding why I waited years to report this story. Tim Wheeland at CBS4 for sending their archival tape. Joe Johnson for taking me on one of the most thrilling rides of my life. Tom Dispinet for being a great host and making a mean spiked coffee. Pat Kincannon for allowing me to come out to Ohio and trusting me with his story. And of course, every other voice you heard in this podcast. Their perspectives were all essential in providing a 360-degree view of a complicated story. A story in which I think we can all see a piece of ourselves. And finally, a big shout out to you, the listeners. Thanks for following us on season one of The Syndicate. Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.